Self-care is what fills your cup up. So that's mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And once you tend to focus on having your cup full in those areas, everything else will overflow. You're listening to the Redefining Wealth Podcast with Patrice Washington. In today's episode, we sit down with Takia Blackman. She says that success does not mean you're exempt. Hey there, this is Patrice Washington from patricewashington.com, where we chase purpose, not money. Welcome back to another episode of Redefining Wealth. If you are brand spanking new here, you need to know we're not your traditional personal finance podcast. This community understands that wealth is so much more than money and material possessions. We believe in the 12th century definition of wealth, which is the condition of well-being. And so we talk about wealth from a slightly different, actually a very different perspective than many folks out there. And while they all have their place, um, I think I'm very complimentary to most personal finance shows. I really look to unpack the other parts of our lives that impact our money. And we just don't often think about it. And so we're in a time right now, a very unique dispensation of time where Our normalcy has been stripped from us and there is just so much going on. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter if, you know, nothing matters. (laughs) COVID-19 is no respecter of person. It literally doesn't matter. Are there some communities that are obviously more impacted Yes, we know that, but we also have seen celebrity in common man stricken with the same disease and end up with similar results. And so there are a lot of people that I know in my communities, in my networks, in my sphere of influence who are suffering and they're ashamed to say that they're suffering. They're ashamed to say that they're scared. They're embarrassed to say that they're worried, um, especially believers, people who consider themselves to be Christian or maybe have some other deep belief in a major religion, feel intimidated to say, I'm feeling, I'm feeling uncertain. I'm having these thoughts. I'm having these fears. uh, I'm having this trepidation. And I thought it would be great to bring back this Rewind episode from 2019 with Takiya Blackman because I have seen too many strong friends suffer in silence. And I want to be sure that we understand as a community that success does not mean that you're exempt. And wearing the label or the mask or the hat of strong friend may not be the best to wear in this season. And if you need support, I want you to get the support that you need and not suffer in silence. 
And this episode is actually also brought to you by our very own guest, Takia Blackman. She's hosting her next wellness recovery action plan in just a few weeks. And I thought it was important to share with my community. It's a four-week online self-designed prevention and wellness training that anyone can use to get well, stay well, and create the life they desire. If you are battling burnout, If you are struggling with making self-care a priority right now, especially in a season like this where so much is unclear, and if you don't know, if you acknowledge that you don't know how to detect the early warning signs of deteriorating mental health, then you need a plan. And not just any plan, you need one that allows you to stay on track, get back on track, or help you navigate a crisis. And if you are in that space right now, many people, not just you, but you're listening, so I'm talking to you, are experiencing crisis and you are not alone. The Wellness Recovery Action Plan, also known as RAP, is an evidence-based practice and it was initially used by healthcare and mental health systems all over the world to address all kinds of physical, mental health, and life issues. And now people in all types of circumstances use this as a resource. And I just think it's incredible that it's now available to us online in an affordable, safe, supportive non-judgmental, intimate community of no more than 25 women at a time. And this course is not like a standard online course, maybe giving you limited access to, you know, your instructor, limited engagement. This is interactive because Takiya wants you to apply what you're learning to have a space to share experiences and bond with other women who may identify just as you do. A strong, successful stand-up gal who is in a season where you just need to talk and you need to devise the plan that is going to work for you. So if that's you, to find out more and claim your seat, again, there's only 25 seats per cohort, visit fireflyesunite.com forward slash wrap. Fireflyesunite.com forward slash W-R-A-P. I want you to listen to this episode carefully because you'll learn that none of us are above needing a wrap, especially in times like this. Now, before we jump all the way in, let me quickly read Takia's official bio. Takia, MPS, mental health advocate, speaker, and author, is the owner of Fireflies Unite, a mental health media and communications company, and the creator and host of the Fireflies Unite podcast, a weekly podcast dedicating to bringing light into darkness, just like the fireflies, by sharing the stories of individuals thriving with mental illness, especially within communities of color. She's described as an inspiration because this Georgetown University and Howard University graduate shares her heartfelt and powerful testimony that anyone can thrive despite having a mental illness. Takia was diagnosed with major depression and generalized anxiety disorders and is a suicide survivor. Her first book, Saved and Depression, A Suicide Survivor's Journey of Mental Health, Healing and Faith, was written to educate her community on mental health and to also encourage people of color in particular to seek treatment. Without further ado, here is Takia Blackman. Welcome to the Redefining Wealth podcast, Takia. Hey, Patrice. Girl, I am so excited to have an opportunity to share your book and your message on this podcast. This is such a long time coming. 
I know. I just I'm often amazed at how I don't remember how we how I found you, but I did. And I've always been inspired by your work. And you've just been like a big sister and a mentor from afar. And uh, I just love what you're doing. You just have the best, you know, spirit. I, I know you came to see me speak last year. Was that last year already? Yeah, yes. oh, definitely over like mm-hmm. a year and a half ago or so um, at the Paul Mitchell School in Annapolis. And, you know, meeting you, I was like, oh my gosh, she just has the best energy. And then when I started following you and then, you know, listening to your podcast, uh, like most people say, you would have no idea, right? Like that was that was not the platform. You told me a bit about it, but then once I really started following you and understanding more, I would just... I'm in awe of what you've done. And now you've written a book, Saved and Depressed, A Suicide Survivor's Journey of Mental Health, Healing, and Faith. And we've been going back and forth about this book. (laughs) (laughs) You you were sending it to me at the same time I was moving, then I was gone and it was stuck in my P.O. box. And I was telling my husband, you better find Takiya's book. And like so much has happened. But once I really got the digital version again um, and was able to really dig in, I was like, oh, it makes complete sense why there was so much resistance to me getting a hold of this book because there is healing in this book. And I truly believe that your story is going to, I know it already is, but on an even greater scale is going to change lives. I know personally that I even want my daughter to read this book. I still have to find my physical copy because I need to put it in her hands. And that's because one of the biggest things that I take away from this book is that this idea of people who may struggle with mental illness or mental health challenges is not relegated to folks that you see walking on the street talking to themselves. Like Mm -hmm. there is a broader picture and a broader spectrum and you know, having degrees and having a good job does not make you exempt. And I think that is one of the big things we need to take away, but you have a million gems in here. So here's where I want to start. To put it in your words, what you asked yourself when you were in the psychiatric unit of a hospital, how does someone with an apartment, a car, two degrees, and a promising career end up in a place that she was told was for crazy people? Patrice. I really act, I struggle with that because I couldn't see, like, like you said, you know, or like I said, rather, I really did just think it's the person who may be experiencing homelessness and they're talking to themselves or they seem like they're in disarray. People who seem well put together, not knowing that there could be something internally that is actually going on beneath the surface. And I remember saying to the woman at the hospital, one of the directors on the floor, and I said, I don't belong here. And she told me, she said, you're here because your brain is sick. Just like you would go to the cardiologist if you were having issues with your heart. Right now you're here because your brain is sick. And what you did up until this point, it served its purpose. But right now you're here because you have to figure out how to move forward. And for some reason, those words uh, really stuck with me. And she said, you know, highly educated people, they get sick, too. So um, your degree has nothing to do with why you're in here, because in my mind, I was sure that I was way too educated to be there. 
I mean, well, not only that, when you called your aunt from the hospital, didn't she say you don't belong there? With those people. And I'm like, right, I know. Yeah, she did. She said that. And, and my aunt actually read the part of that book and she was like, I'm, I didn't know that you were going to put it in there. And I said, it's not to put you in a bad light or say you don't love me or you didn't care about me. My aunt is, has always been and still is one of my biggest supporters. But I said, I put it there because I it proves the point that not only did I think I did it, I didn't belong there, but that's something that a lot of people think. That because my aunt said I would look at you and I would see the girl who did all the pageants and drill team and Girl Scout. I saw that girl, the person who was always very inspirational. She said, but I never knew as a child that you were struggling with thinking about ending your life. Mm -hmm. Your your aunt is many of us, right? So auntie, if you're listening, we're going to let you off the hook because (laughs) many people... That's the way they answer. You know, you say something is wrong and that you get a girl ain't nothing wrong with you. You don't have anything to be depressed about. Snap out of it. You just being lazy. You know, that's not you. That's not who you are. Don't let the devil get you. Right. Like that's what well-meaning people do. That's what that's what we say, because we think that is going to help you snap out of it. But it's deeper than that. Mm-hmm. I think. <sighs> It's it's deeper than I think we like to admit or realize. And so I remember just not even realizing what suicide was. And I that's something I often talk about in the book. And I'm saying, like, I didn't know. I knew that I wanted to end my life and I knew I thought about ways of doing so. But I didn't realize, oh, this could be tied to depression. It was so normal for me until eventually it got to the point where I could no longer suppress the thought. So imagine experiencing suicidal thoughts from 11 years old up until you're 24 and you can't even you can't even stop the thoughts anymore. You know, and for me, it got to the point where I was so tired of fighting with myself internally. I said, you know what? I don't have the strength to do this. It would just be better if I just give into these thoughts, because then I don't have to fight with myself anymore. I know in the book you talked about trauma and how trauma can lead to these types of thoughts. And you talked about a lot of the things that you went through in your childhood. So can you take us back, first of all, the night or the evening or the series of days where that led up to the hospital and what was happening during that time? And then I want to unpack like what happened years before. Yeah. So at this particular time, It was about eight months before the attempt. I got my official diagnosis of major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. And I'm like, it was a part of me that was very relieved because I'm like, oh, okay, it makes sense to to what's going on uh, internally. But then there was other part of me being a part of the Christian faith. I said, oh, no, if I say that I have this out loud, I'm going to be speaking death over my life. And I know life and death is in the power of the tongue, not realizing I'm just admitting and being honest with myself about what's going on, not that I'm giving myself something. So I was afraid to actually admit that. And so at this particular time, there was so much going on from recently finishing um, my master's to right getting out, out of graduate school and like just struggling financially. And then I would just have these waves where the suicidal thoughts, they would come in and then I worked really hard to suppress them. 
And so eventually it got to the point, Patrice, for eight months straight, I could not stop thinking about it. No matter how hard I tried, I was afraid to be by myself. I started telling a few people that were close to me. Um, and it just seemed like they were progressively getting worse and louder until eventually I stopped functioning. So at this point, I was not even working. Um, I was not eating. I was not taking care of my hygiene. So yes, I, I'm pretty sure I had an odor. Um, I just got to the point where I was completely, basically like a zombie. I was like existing. I wasn't living. And I remember maybe like three or four months before I had told a friend because I had left work early a particular day. And I was like, I just can't do this anymore. And so I, I can't remember exactly what I said to her, but I'm pretty sure it implied that I was going to end my life. And so this time the police showed up and I just said whatever I needed to say to get them out of the house, because I was like, I'm not going to that place that's for quote unquote crazy people. And then three months later, at this time, I said, again, like, you know, I was just really tired. And so I had taken these substances and I was like, I, it, by this particular time, I'm just waiting to pass away. And I, while I was waiting to pass away, I just texted a friend and I told her it would be better if I wasn't here or if I was dead, something along those lines. But that friend didn't know that I already had I've taken all these substances and was just like, okay, I'm just waiting. So I guess she contacted the police because, well, she did. At this particular time, I didn't know that she did. And they showed up to the house and they broke into the window. And I was extremely weak and fragile because I didn't have anything to eat or drink in like three or four days. I was just, I was really numb. And so they asked, well, we see that you're weak. Can you make it to the door? And I told them I would do my best, but they said if not, they would come through the window. By this particular time, I was able to like get up and make it to the door. And they asked me, did you try to hurt yourself or are you thinking about hurting yourself? And I told them what I did. And they said, you are a threat to yourself. Not only this, you, you know, you look disheveled. um, You don't look completely coherent. And I wasn't 100% coherent. And so they said, well, we need to take you to the hospital or either we're going to handcuff you because you are a risk to yourself. And so I agreed to uh, have the, the paramedics transport me. And when I got to the hospital, I just remember them asking me questions that I didn't know, like what, like what day it was and what month it was. Like, I just, I, I didn't know. I had spent so many days in the house and just being like bedridden that every the days just really started running together. And so he said, you, you have two options. You can voluntarily check yourself in or either we're going to check you in, but you're not leaving this space because you are a threat to yourself. And at that point I felt trapped and I was like, okay, well, they're not going to let me leave here. So I said, well, at this point, I guess I'll just check myself in, not realizing all that I was actually about to endure once, you know, they told me to take off everything and my cell phone and I was in scrubs. Like I I just I, I was on suicide watch for that particular time. And really, that's when like this whole mental health journey really started to begin for me. Wow. And I know you ended up doing like an outpatient type of treatment. 
Yes, I did. So I was in the hospital for a couple of days and then I transitioned to being an outpatient for like eight hours a day of intense therapy. But at least I was able to go home without actually being in like a lockdown unit. Mm-hmm. And I did that for about a month. And so some of the things that you learned, obviously that was just the beginning of your recovery, but some of the things that you've learned on your recovery journey what I was kind of referencing a little prematurely, which was that a lot of times the trauma that we experience at different points in life, but in particular in childhood, can end up triggering or leading to suicidal thoughts or drug and alcohol abuse. Can you touch a little bit on what your childhood was like as well? Because I know a a lot of times for people who are high achievers, like you were coming out of a second degree, you went to prestigious universities and you had all this stuff going on. And so we think that we can stuff down Mm. um, our childhood and that, you know, the best thing about childhood is that it's over and I don't have to deal with it. I've moved on. But the truth is, if you don't deal with it, it will come back to deal with you at some point. So how did your childhood from your perspective, kind of lead to the anxiety or depression that be kind of came a normal thing for you? Yeah. So I think in particular with the anxiety, I watched my mom be verbally and physically abused growing up. And so in this environment, it wasn't like it happened every day. It could have been one month and then it could have been six months later. But it was since it was so sporadic, I never knew what I was going to get once I went into the house. So it created this anxiety that I didn't even realize that I spent majority of my life on edge. I truly thought it was normal to walk around with racing thoughts, to not being able to quiet your mind. Like I, it just seemed so foreign that someone wouldn't have experienced anxiety to that degree, to the point where it's actually crippling you. And so I was just like, yeah, everyone has experienced anxiety. But my therapist helped remind me, she said, yeah, it's, it's normal. But when it starts to cripple you, that's, that's when it's an issue. And so I remember as a child, one of the things that I often did to just kind of be outside of the house was just be involved in anything that you can think of, because then that meant that I spent less time in the house. And I remember my mom I felt like she was choosing my siblings dad over my siblings and I, because I was like, how could you let this guy be in the house who is abusing you, who is also, you know, using drugs and creating this really toxic environment for us. And he would leave at a time. He would leave at a particular time if they would fight. And then, you know, he would come back and it just created a a lot of anxiety for me. And then having this desire of wanting to have my dad around, but my dad struggled with, you know, being addicted to drugs and incarcerated for majority of my life. He actually just got out of jail not too long ago. And so that always left me feeling like I was missing the love of my father, even though I knew that he loved me, but he couldn't physically be there because of his addiction. And I knew that my mom loved me and yes, she supported me, but I just could never wrap my head around why this was the life. Um, As a child, I used to often question why God gave me my parents. I'm like, you gave me a mom who is 
letting herself be abused and a dad who's struggling with addiction issues. And now I'm sitting here and I have to sort through all of this stuff as a child, very confused. And then I remember just thinking to myself at 11 years old, I said, you know, it would be better if I was dead. And I didn't really quite know what that meant, but I know that's really what started me. Um, That's what really opened the door for it. And I think another part of that too is just, you know, when you, you are exposed to not just in my, in my house environment, but like growing up in, uh, you know, low income or the projects as most people say. So you see people on, you know, on the corner selling drugs or using drugs, losing friends to gun violence and gang activity, teen pregnancy, all this stuff was very normal for me. And it really did play a role in my development as a child when that's the prime years that your brain is developing. And when those things are happening, trauma does shift the way that your brain is, you know, communicating to you. It does shift the way that you view the world and how your body responds to everything around you. Yeah. When I was reading that, and this is in no comparison, right? But I do remember times when I was younger. I remember one time in particular, I was about 10 or 11 years old. And, you know, my dad was absent, not because of, you know, substance abuse or anything like that. He was absent from all of us. I have, you know, siblings everywhere type of thing. But I remember writing my mom a letter because she would always leave me with my grandma and my grandma was kind of verbally abusive. And I didn't know how to put words to that when I was a kid, but I knew how it made me feel. And I remember writing my mom a letter that was like, if you didn't want me, why did you have me? And I didn't understand. My mom lived in my house, but she worked so much. So as I got older, I could understand why she was always gone. But at the time I'm like 10. So I'm like, if you don't want me, why did you have me? Like, da, 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 da. She never answered me. (laughs) When she hears this episode, this might be the first time we have a conversation about it. But I remember putting it in her purse and she worked worked a night shift and I knew she was going to see that letter. But I just remember all of these thoughts about like, well, why, like, you know, and I grew up in the hood. So, you know, there were a lot of drive-bys. There was a lot of drug paraphernalia. There were girls my age, I'm talking fourth and fifth grade, who were getting pregnant and like just disappearing. <laughs> like, you know, showing up to school one day with a belly and then gone. So there were all these things that my 10, 11-year-old mind just could not wrap itself around. I, when I went to a different school in a different area, I was bused to another school like you, I started to focus on achievement. Like I was like, I'm going to play basketball and be president of this and the vice president of that and the treasurer of this. And I'm going to play this sport and that sport because I just wanted to be gone from sunup to sundown. By the time I got there, I wanted to like do homework and go to bed. And I remember you referencing that, but I share that to say, you know, I have, I don't believe I've particularly struggled with any major mental health challenges, but I know that so many of us get into these cycles of overachievement to stuff down what's going on. Yes. Fast forward and you haven't really learned to cope with anything. And I love that you start the book with the glossary. So you have a glossary at the beginning of the book that just breaks down the difference between several things. But in particular, can you share the difference between mental health, which we all have, and mental illness? 
because I think it gets used interchangeably and incorrectly. And so when you tell someone, you know, or if you ask someone, well, how's your mental health? And they get in, get all, you know, offended. It's like, ma'am, everyone has mental health, (laughs) (laughs) right? Everybody has mental health. So can you break down that difference? Because I think many of us who are high achieving women and we make it happen or people in general, because I have a lot of men that listen now, but you know, you get into this, you know, achievement checklist type of thing. And so now you think this can't impact you. But like the young woman told you or the woman told you when you got to the psychiatric unit, your brain is sick. Your brain is sick. So can you break down that difference between mental health and mental illness just for clarity? Yeah, I mean, I think you you did it some justice. But yeah, we are, we all have mental health just like we all have physical health. And the biggest thing is a lot of times people will assume that if, like you said, if they have mental health, it's like, oh, then that means I have issues. But no, your mental health, it's a person's condition with regard to their emotional and psychological state. So you could be doing extremely well mentally and emotionally and taking care of yourself and you have great mental health. And then when you have poor mental health, a lot of times when, you know, for example, when life happens and we're not taking care of our mental health, if left untreated, then that's a lot of times how mental illness will develop. And that could be anything from major depressive disorder to bipolar disorder to schizophrenia. But the biggest thing with mental illness is that it will destruct your ability to function at your maximum capacity. So it's usually uh, how you view the world may be tainted when you're sometimes experiencing mental illness or how a person usually um, perceives the world and how they behave and how they think. And sometimes people will call mental illness or they'll say a um, psychiatric disorder. But the biggest thing that with mental illness is usually caused by a significant amount of distress and it impairs someone's ability to function at their maximum capacity. So I hope I did it some justice. Yeah, I think that was good. And I think that really segues into something else that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, You have a chapter called Depression is Not a Synonym for Sadness. And that is another place where we use these words interchangeably, but also very incorrectly. And one of the things that you talked about is really how debilitating it is when you're in a depressive episode, how some people will perceive that as like, well, you're being lazy or, oh, you're sad and you just don't, you just don't feel good. Like you just push through and it's not that simple to push through. Can you break down the difference between sadness and depression so that we can use it in the right context? Yeah, there's something that has, when people would sometimes use sadness or depression, but they really mean they're sad, I would often get upset because it would minimize how the severity of the illness and how it really almost took my life away. And so I think the biggest thing is with sadness, when oftentimes when a situation gets better, you find that. You don't have enough money to get your car fixed. So you may be sad or a little bummed out about it. You kind of have the, the, you know, the blues and you're like, but when that's it, but when someone comes and blesses you with the money to get your car fixed, you're fine. And so with sadness is usually, it typically tends to kind of fade away once the situation gets better. 
But with depression, there is for some people, um, even though it shows up differently for all, it's a, a lingering sadness that actually never leaves. And some people describe it as a dark cloud that's over them. And I remember at one point where I wasn't even sad anymore, I was actually numb. So I couldn't feel anything. And another thing, too, with depression, it's a loss of interest in activities that you usually enjoy. It typically the baseline is for two weeks or longer. So if you find that, you know, you like going to out to eat with your girls every every Thursday night for, for happy hour and then it's something that you usually enjoy. But now you're starting to isolate um, You're you know, maybe you're not talking. You shut down your social media. You're ignoring people's text messages and you're staying locked in your room and you find that you're really uh, crippled, maybe in your bed, maybe you're bedridden for a couple days. You're not eating. For some people, it's rapid weight gain or other people is rapid weight loss. Some people are sleeping too much or it's the opposite and they could be sleeping too little. Some people could um, have a loss of appetite. And so that's the thing, um, how it showed up for me was really at the point of just being in bed for days at a time and having moments of not eating and then having moments of binge eating. So depending on the person, it can vary as far as how it shows up for them. But the biggest thing, like I said, with depression, it will just continue to linger. And the longer you are not being treated, it's usually the harder it is to get out of it. And I like to explain it. For me, I would often say that depression, what it felt like for me was uh, being paralyzed, but having a ton of bricks on top of me. So I couldn't even push the bricks off because I'm paralyzed. And so that's how it felt for me. But I think the biggest thing in terms of sadness um, and depression is that, like I said, with sadness, it usually fades away. But if you find that it's going on for longer than longer than it should be, and typically like two weeks is the baseline, and then you're realizing other behaviors. And then even like with depression too, uh, having suicidal thoughts or thinking about dying, that's, that's really what the determining factors are when you think of sadness and depression. And I learned in the book that depression was the leading was a leading disability. I never really considered it as a disability. And I know it was an extreme example, but you said, you know, when someone is basically in a depressive state and someone says, well, push through your being lazy, would you say to a cancer patient, stop losing your hair, get your energy up? Like, and they're clearly, you know, weakening. Like if you if we see depression more as a disability, I really do feel like we can have a greater level of compassion as opposed to just saying things so flippantly. And again, I don't think that people mean, right, to to just say it so flippantly, but it's been one of those things that's so often swept under the rug and we just don't address things that folks don't know what to say. So they just say dumb stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I talk about a lot of, you know, a few things people said to me and it would actually make me feel worse and then I would continue to isolate and that will only amplify the episode and make it worse for me. You know, you said, I do believe that people mean well, but I think the biggest thing is that when someone is experiencing a depressive episode, the biggest thing you can just ask them is, how can I support you in this moment? That may mean just listening to them. Maybe they don't need to hear your advice. They just need to get it out. Maybe they may need your support. Just like some of the same things you would do when someone's physically sick. 
Like maybe you have to go over there and check on them and make sure that they're actually eating. Um, maybe you do have to drive them to their appointment. Like there are people who actually receive disability checks from the government for living with major depressive disorder. Of course, that's like a severe case of it because there is like a mild to moderate side where people can't function. But there is a, a population of people who are actually debilitated uh, by it and have a hard time doing things like actually working and taking care of themselves. And I do believe that if we just, it will help us have just a, a different uh, level of understanding and compassion if we start to realize that depression is not a character flaw. It is for some people, it's a, you know, a, it doesn't always need a reason. I often talk about like, sometimes people say like, what do you have to be depressed about? It's like, oh, you have this, you have that. It could be linked to childhood trauma. Or for some people, um, the, the biggest, uh, the, the chemical that they often talk about that's associated with depression is serotonin. And so it's a chemical in the brain that helps uh, uh, impact your mood. And so when a person is in a depressive state, their level of serotonin is actually decreased. And so a lot of times, like what I was doing for almost four years was taking medication to help just level my and have some balance and my levels of, of serotonin so that I can function and do simple things like eat and take a shower. And so I think it's important that, you know, people understand that there is a, a science, you know, a chemical imbalance in the brain as to why some people cannot function and it is not a character flaw. I love that. Depression is not a character flaw. Depression is also not something that you can pray away. Oh, do you, no. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? For she's now, you know, I disagree with that statement. <laughs> oh, man, like that has that that really, really, you know, of course, for, for a little bit of time impacted my um, relationship with God. And then, of course, you know, being a part of the Christian faith in the church. The thing is something that my um, pastor and uh, my big sister tells me, who's also my pastor and a, um, and a therapist, she often says, you know, prayer is the weapon and the strategy is therapy. So you can pray to whoever you believe in. In this case, I'm, you know, talking about Jesus because I'm, I'm of the Christian faith. But praying and um, seeking mental health treatment does not mean that one lacks faith in God. And I think it's really important that people hear that and they understand that because we wouldn't tell someone if they broke their leg, if you go to um, get a cast, that means you like faith in God, you know? And so we often tend to, again, like minimize um, or think that when it's a physical thing that we can actually see and put a name on it, it's like, oh, I can pray for that. And that doesn't mean, and that doesn't mean that I like faith in God. But when it comes to my mental and emotional well-being, if I pray for that, then that means that I'm not, I lack faith in God. That means that I'm not uh, reading my Bible enough. That means that I'm not going to church enough. Or like I was told I need to speak in tongues for 20 minutes a day. And I'm like, I don't even know how to do that. So it was just things like that. And so I, I really want people to understand that you can do both of them and they both serve me. They both have its benefits for, for helping one's mental health because while yes, I do, I'm, I'm a, been a part of a, a Baptist church and I, you know, I'm all into the shouting and, you know, all of that. But at the same time, there are other things sometimes that we need to do to help us with our mental health. And one of the biggest things that I, I like to say is that 
I had to pray and ask God to send me the send me the right therapist. Make sure that all the people that are on my treatment team, my therapist, my psychiatrist, any uh, support groups that I'm going to help me, um, you know, get an alignment and align these things so that I can actually receive the care that I need to get better. And so that's like the biggest thing I, I really want people to take away is just knowing that like it not only not being a character flaw doesn't mean that, you know, you lack faith in God, um, because a lot of times people tend to feel that well. They feel like they're not strong enough because it's like, oh, you can, I came from your, your people came from slavery. So why can't you get up out of bed? And it's like, y'all, it's a little bit more deeper than that. Mm-hmm. And the truth is there are a record number of pastors, ministers, bishops mm-hmm. who can shout on Sunday and Monday committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Like there's a record number. Like it's it's been an increasing phenomenon, if you will. So before we go any further, I thought it was really important that I highlight something in particular here. A few days after we recorded this episode, I spoke to Takia via email and she really helped enlighten me on my choice of words. And if you noticed, I used the term committed suicide. And Takia shared this with me, which I really felt was important to share with you. Saying committed suicide puts the blame on the individual instead of the mental illness that influences their action. Would we say that someone who died by cancer or diabetes committed to their death? Did the person who fell asleep driving and die commit to their death? It's something we say as a society without realizing how someone else may interpret it. It may not seem like a big deal to some, but it is to some of us who are survivors. Words have power and they have the ability to leave lifelong scars. So I'm encouraging us to stop placing blame and instead, please consider changing it to die by suicide. So I could have attempted to edit that in, but instead I wanted to bring awareness of it so that you, like me, who said it, I'm sure you say it innocently or because it's just used and we're programmed that way, just in media and everywhere else, we just don't even think about what it implies. And so I've been trying to shift my language ever since recording this interview and receiving her email. And I just, I didn't want to do it in the intro or outro. I wanted to stop us dead in our tracks and just make sure because if I said it before or after, you may not necessarily catch it. So thank you for bearing with me for this little interlude. You know, I don't normally do that, but it matters enough to me. And I know it matters to Takia. And I know it matters to other survivors out there that we have this very important conversation. So without further ado, here's the rest of the interview. The stigma that we have about getting real support by trained professionals is ridiculous. Like it's, I'm, I love what you're doing because you're bringing awareness to it. And we have to just keep doing that. That's why I wanted to even have the conversation, uh, you know, because it's just so necessary to stop thinking that we can pray things away. Because if we believe that faith without works is dead, then why would you condemn someone for going to do the work? Going, like pushing through and, and committing to doing therapy and having a psychiatrist and all this stuff is work. That is the work that you need to attach to the faith that you have in my, in my opinion. No, you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. Girl, 
you know, my my blood was boiling even when I asked that question. (laughs) Okay, I have to get to this one. And I like, you know, I have a million things that I want to talk to you about, but I have to at least get to this because I think it's so big. There was a part in the book where you talked about the racing thoughts you would get when you were scrolling through social media and how if someone were to ask you, well, how long? Right. As you were having all these thoughts like, oh, they got a promotion. Oh, she's married. Oh, so she didn't have another baby. Like, oh, my gosh, someone got killed. Like all these ups and downs and different things that you're seeing. And it could be maybe hours you wouldn't even know. And you said something that really stood out to me. I used social media to escape my depression, even though it was the very thing that contributed to my depression and anxiety. What advice do you have for people who find themselves in that comparison mode? And it may be contributing not just to sadness, but to literal depression. Get off social media. Um, And I think the biggest thing, because I had to do that, I had to take at least, it was almost, I'm pretty sure a year to a year and a half where I was off social media and get connected to a mental health professional so that you can unpack to figure out why am I comparing myself to other people? Um, Why do I find myself unworthy? Why do I feel like I need to post every single thing? Like if I don't post what I have for dinner, um, then people are not going to think that I ate anything. Like, why do I put this extra pressure on myself to eat or to act like everything is okay when it's really not? And that's something that I had to do. I just had to get off social media until I was in a better um, in a mentally and emotionally healthy space to be able to actually be on social media. And for so long of just being on there, not just with comparing myself, I use it as, I use it as a way to, to trick myself and to trick other people to thinking that I was actually okay when I wasn't. Mm. Yeah, because they saw your smiling pictures backstage at Black Girls Rock. I read that. <laughs> and you're doing all these amazing things. And so you can be posting all these filtered images, but... The, like really you're fooling other people as well as yourself. Yes, absolutely. That's why now if, you know, you've been following me for a little while, I, I'm very transparent and I will say like, you know, what the things that I'm currently experiencing. So that way people can actually know, like y'all, it's impossible to be happy, go lucky 365 days a year. Of course, I'm not saying in terms of like, depression that someone's going to experience a depression within that time period but we do have moments in our life where things may not be going as planned and we experience disappointments and for me it's really important that people see that they never think that just because I have the courage to tell my story now I view social media very different because I'm in a very different space in a healthy space and so now I never want people to think that just because I have the courage to tell my story that I have arrived Um, And I remember reading a book review. Someone had said something along the lines, like how she arrived in her recovery. And I said, I didn't arrive. I said, I'll be arriving to the day that I die. I think it's important that people realize that I am just, I use my platform as an opportunity so people can see that with depression, I can have very great days. And it's something that I still manage um, to this day. But then there are moments when I actually have, really bad days, even with taking medication, even with going to therapy. 
And so for me, I I really want to caution people that anytime they feel that social media is becoming too much or they're comparing themselves to people, that they take time to step away and seek mental health treatment. Um, Whether you have depression or not, if you find that you're comparing yourself, really step away to uh, ask yourself, why is this bothering me so much? Mm -hmm. I also have chosen to just unfollow things that cause me to struggle. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, like for a fact, I've spoken to some of my clients about this, that they will constantly be in comparison mode with what someone in their industry or in their field is doing. Uh, and but she's doing this and they launched this and they have that and they got asked to speak at this. And I know that I felt the same things. And I'm like, how did you see that? Well, I follow them. I said, well, why do you keep following them? The unfollow button is your friend, like unfollow anything that causes you to struggle. Yeah. And definitely still ask yourself what is going on with me, which I totally do myself and believe in and have to just kind of like remember what I'm on assignment to do. But I also just refuse to just let myself keep feeling that way. If if there's a way that I can do something, any small thing, which is unfollow I unfollow people I like like I love some of the people that I've unfollowed but I'm gonna unfollow you in this season <laughs> so when I talk to them like did you see her I'm like girl I unfollowed you six months ago let me go follow you I think I'm ready <laughs> like, oh, yes Patrice I'm, I don't know why I didn't even think about that but yes I actually do that too because it's important that I protect my peace um, I often talk about I work so hard to create peace in my life. And so anything or anyone that comes to disrupt that peace, I have to immediately remove it. Absolutely. I noticed on your away message for your emails that you had the following um, a couple weeks ago. I received your email. I'm currently taking time to refill my cup. I cannot advocate for mental health and encourage self-care. If I am not practicing what I preach, I cannot give from an empty cup. Neither can you. Thank you in advance for your understanding. I will respond upon my return. I loved that. I just loved it. When I saw it, I was like, "You, I heard that. <laughs> you better do it. <laughs> I loved it. I love that you are one, you know, protecting yourself by building that in. Is that something that you do often? Do you build in times for recovery or do you do that just when you know that it look, it's, it's been a little intense. I need to preserve my peace. So I do both. Something that I constantly do, especially during the week is I work out in the morning at 5 a.m. So yes, I've been up for a while. Um, <laughs> and I use that time to actually fill my cup up before and listen to praise and worship and meditate and pray before I even interact with the world. That's my time in the morning. So I do have that time to fill my cup up every single day. But then that particular time, you know, with the email, I have recently, uh, just a month ago, um, lost my 23-year-old cousin. So it really did shatter um, my world to just, you know, her struggles with mental illness as well and substance use um, as well. And so having a heart condition and a lot of things that she was dealing with. And so for me, it really, I had to take time to pull back and say, what am I going to do to actually to grieve this loss? But what am I going to do to honor her as well? And so I knew that I needed to take time to pull away because if not, I would be no good to to, to anyone else. 
And I think the biggest thing is like how I talk about in the book, uh, a chapter where I talk about holding back on the manis and the petties. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we tend to think that like, oh, I'm getting my hair done, I'm getting my nails done. Um, you know, I'm getting my makeup done. So I'm taking care of myself. And it's like, yeah, that stuff is ma- uh, maintenance and it does make us feel good. But at the same time, what good are all of those things if you're broken on the inside, the massage and the manicure and the pedicure, it's not going to cure your depression. Mm. So I think it's important that we realize that, yes, we need to do those things that make us feel good um, on the surface level and take care of like our, our hygiene and what makes us feel uh, feel pretty and look pretty. But actually taking a step back to be like, OK, am I actually doing this to actually ignore and not deal with the issues. Um, And that's the biggest thing, you know, I often talk about people realizing that self-care is what fills your cup up. So that's mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And once you tend to focus on having um, your cup full in those areas, everything else will overflow. And I can't give, uh, I can't take credit for this. Iyala often talks about my cup runneth over. She refers to that scripture and she says, what's in my cup is for me. What runs over is for everybody else. And so I have to keep my cup full and overflowing if I want to continue to serve and help other people. And I love that one of the ways that you serve is through your podcast. Yes. Yeah. I forgot about that. (laughs) (laughs) Can you talk about what Fireflies Unite means and just I really want to be crystal clear for those who need additional support of the ways that beyond the book, how you support out in the world, because I think what you do is fi- with Fireflies is phenomenal. Yes. So the mission of the podcast is truly to bring light into darkness. And it's been going on for about a year and a half. By light into darkness, I say Beyonce has her beehive. Kia has her fireflies. Because I believe that just like the insects, they bring light into darkness. When people are experiencing um, challenges mentally and emotionally, they may find that they're isolating themselves and they feel like they're very, they're in a very dark place. But by talking about it, we're uniting together to have this conversation and we're bringing light to something that tends to be placed in the dark. And so that's the, the analogy behind it. And so I interview so many people who have who live with bipolar disorder. I've interviewed um, Jennifer Lewis and she talked about what it's like to live with bipolar disorder. Um, I talked to a therapist who talked about what it's like to live with bipolar disorder and what led him into um, becoming a therapist. I, I really want people of color. That's my focus just because we tend to have more of a stigma and we come from a long lineage of trauma um, within communities of color to see that Mental health doesn't necessarily have a look and it may be the person who you feel like is so high achieving and um, and high functioning, but that may be the very person who's actually struggling internally. And so that's really what the mission of my podcast is. I just look to find stories for people who have who choose to not be defined by their mental illness and they're actually thriving with that mental health diagnosis. I love it. So Takia, before I let you go, I don't want to let you go, but before (laughs) I let you go, you know, at the end of every episode, we ask the Redefining Wealth rapid wisdom questions. So just tell us the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. I am ready. All right. So how do you define success? 
walking in my God-given purpose. Yes. Um, How do you define wealth in three words or less? Wholeness and peace. That was good. People never, (laughs) you got it right off the bat. That's good. Wholeness and peace. All right. Um, Name one book that has helped redefine how you see wealth. All right. I'm not yanking your horn, but I have to say your book. Uh, And the reason why I say that is because I started reading it a few years ago. And I don't think that I was in the, I was in the mental space to actually receive all that was being dropped on me. And I actually started rereading it like a couple weeks ago. So I, I have, I have to say your book, Real Money Answers for a Woman. Oh, thank you. I hear that a lot too, where people are like, you got to be ready. Like first time I picked it up, I wasn't ready. So I appreciate that because you know, it starts with mindset stuff. So yeah, for sure. And fill in the blank. My name is, and to me, the truth about wealth is. My name is Takia Blackman. And for me, the truth about wealth is that it is contingent upon your healing and saying yes to the call. Mm, I love the work that you do. I love following you. Like I said, the book is incredible. We didn't even get into a lot of the meat that is in the book. There's so much, <laughs> like there, there's just so much, but it's probably one of the best books that I've personally read just on mental health. Like, you know, just like on, on really having an understanding, like you really up-leveled my compassion for people who may be suffering from depression, who are suffering, but also may be suffering from depression as a disability and don't even recognize it because one, I know a a line of people who just swept a lot of things under the rug, right? So there will be people in our family where you know good and heck well that that they're like, something's going on here. (laughs) Like like I'm a kid and I'm like, "Mm, I don't know. Like, should we just be not addressing this? Like what, what's going on here? And just come from a place of, you know, things just get swept under the rug and folks don't deal with things and, and how that plays out. And you go so deeply into generational trauma and ignoring signs in our families. And you unpack so much stuff that truly, I think it's a great read for anyone. I think that you need to read it before you think you need it. I think it's one of those things like you should read it before you think you need it. So you understand what the signs and symptoms are, if not for yourself, for your loved ones, for your friends, so that you do check on your strong friend. Right. As they say, so that you do um, pay attention and just have a greater level of awareness. And so that you can say the right things at the right time and not just blatantly throw out things like you being lazy or you just want to be enabled or you this or push through or just pray about it like so that we can actually have conversations that are rooted in support versus judgment Mm -hmm. Um, and actually validate what someone is feeling because a lot of times when someone is experiencing or they're in a depressive state um they really do need to be uh validated um not to not to say anything that will actually minimize what they're going through because realizing it's actually real for them, even if you don't, you have a different perspective of it. Yes. Even when you don't understand it's human nature to try to compare. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, as someone who's called upon as a coach quite often, my, my tendency is to want to coach people out of stuff. 
And that's not it. Like that ain't always what's called for, right? Um, and you taught me a lot in the book. You really, really did, which is why I think everyone should should really check it out. So thank you for your work. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, thank you for allowing this story to evolve into such a purposeful body of work. Like I just, I adore you. I think you are just a phenomenal young woman and... I'm just glad that I got to meet you and that I will, I know, see you again in, in the near future. But man, Takia, thank you. Just thank you. Thank you, Patrice. All right. I know that was powerful. I know there was so much there. And I truly, truly hope that this has served you in this time. So, you know, sometimes when we hear something, it doesn't quite resonate until we're in a different point in our lives. And I know that many of you who are OG listeners, purpose chasers, you heard this episode when it first aired in 2019, but I bet it hit a little different. I bet it hit a little differently today because we're in a new time and we have experienced and been exposed to new circumstances. So with that being said, don't forget to check out fireflyesunite.com forward slash rap. That's fireflyesunite.com forward slash W-R-A-P. It was really important to me to get this message out because I just feel it is so necessary right now. And Takia says that anyone can take the course, right? She is a suicide survivor as well as currently living with bipolar disorder. So she knows what it's like and She has the ability and the credentials to hold your hand through this, but she chose to focus on Black women because we have higher rates of mental health challenges due to microaggressions, generational trauma, anxiety, and even according to the CDC, we experience depression at higher rates than others. So especially for Black women who are listening, and if you're not a Black woman, please pass this opportunity on to a Black woman you love because this isn't about getting your hair and nails done. We typically think of that as our self-care. In the midst of a pandemic, those superficial ways of taking care of yourself, you guys, they're just not even an option. You know, I spoke to Takia and she is talking about the type of self-care that leaves your cup overflowing, right? Because many of us feel so depleted in this season. This is the type of work that is going to help you Get your cup back overflowing so that you can continue to sprinkle all that black girl magic without feeling depleted and drained and just lost. This is serious. I'm getting the emails. I'm getting the DMs. This is serious. And I'm just 1000% behind supporting Takia as she supports you with discovering ways to create hope. It's important that we all have documented our own simple and safe wellness tools that we understand how to identify early warning signs and that we have a crisis plan, but even a post-crisis plan. Like these are things that we don't talk about every day, but it's necessary. So if you want to learn more about the Wellness Recovery Action Plan program, just head to fireflyesunite.com forward slash W-R-A-P. Let me know how you're feeling. If you can't share it publicly on my social media pages, 
then you know you are free to DM, you are free to email. I don't know how many of you find the emails anyway, but you send them, I think, through the website. So if you just want to know that someone is listening, feel free. But if you also are just looking to get true support from someone who understands, then please check Takia out. That's it for me today, you guys. I'm continuing to pray and keep everyone covered, but we know faith without works is dead. So if you need to get to work, let's do it. Let's do it. Until next time, I want you to go continue to live your life's purpose, find fulfillment and earn more without ever chasing money. Talk to you later. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.